Well, good morning. It's so good to see you this morning. It's hard to believe, isn't it, that we are starting off 2022. Here we are. Uh, as we're starting a new year, there's a couple of things I, I wanted to make mention of. I thought this would be a good time to, to do this. Uh, number one, we have for some time now been making available something in the back, and you might not be aware of it. We have half sheets in the back that are sermon notes. Uh, they have the, an outline for the sermon uh, on there. The, the direct intention was for some of our young people as they're training themselves in how to listen through a sermon, how to follow a line of thought for 45, 50 minutes in that kind of a way. I've also heard some adults say that it's been helpful to them as well. So um, please know that they're back there on the back table and uh, make use of them if that would be helpful to you. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was just how thankful I am that we were able to end our year last year in the way that we did uh, with the Lord leading us through uh, the Advent considerations that Ryan uh, walked us through, joy, hope, and peace. Was that a blessing to you? It was a great blessing to me. That was just wonderful, and I'm grateful for that. Um, before he began that series, we had just finished John chapter 3. We've been working through the Gospel of John for a lot of this last year. Uh, and uh, before we continue that study and move into chapter 4, we have said that this was going to be the week we were going to pause and dig deeper into a particular concept that's come up now a few times in John's Gospel that we, we haven't uh, looked at, and that's the uh, title that Jesus takes on to himself, Son of Man. This is the morning that we're going to look at that. Uh, he will say of himself that he is the Son of Man 12 times by the time we're finished with John's Gospel. Uh, he's done that three times so far, and uh, what we're going to find out is that this is actually an incredibly important title that Jesus is taking on to himself. But it's, it's a title that doesn't, if you're like me maybe, it doesn't just jump out at you immediately as an, an incredibly significant title, Son of Man. Uh, Son of God might make you think feel or think that something even more important is going on. And we will look at that title as well as we go through this gospel. Uh, but I hope it will be very clear to us this morning just not only why Christ is using this title for himself, but why it is terribly significant in, in terms of who he is and what he has come to do. Uh, I want us to just preview for a moment a couple of reasons why it is so significant before we, we get into this. Uh, and, and what we're hoping to, to gain from our time this morning, specifically looking at that title. Uh, the fact is that much of our goal this morning is going to be informational. Uh, we want to understand better what the Bible means when this title comes up, when it uses the title Son of Man. We want to understand more clearly what Jesus was intending when he takes those words onto himself. So much of our goal in that way is informational, and that's okay. That's information that we need to know, we need to understand. Uh, however, it is information of a particular sort, uh, and of a sort that has, that has implications to it. Uh, what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus' use of this title tells us specifics as to how he has saved your soul. And Jesus is going to use this title 
to teach us some very deep and specific things about why, exactly why you are safe in his arms if you've put your trust in him as your savior. And so you may be like me, you may find that the meaning that Jesus is going to pour into this title is powerful for you in the realm of assurance of salvation, in the realm of our ability to confidently rely on someone else's work in our place instead of our own work. Can't that be difficult sometimes, even as a, as a mature believer? Uh, th- there are times where it can be tempting to waver or to wonder if we really can completely trust someone else's work in my place. Why is that okay? Uh, why is that such a certainty? I think the study of this, wor- this title, Son of Man, informs us specifically on those things. We're going to see that Jesus gave great preference to this particular title. And that he used it to fill it with truth about what kind of Messiah he has come to be for his people. This has been a great encouragement to me, and I pray that the Lord will use it to encourage you in the same way. Uh, I'd like us to begin by reading together from one of the passages that we'll be returning to later this morning. So would you find with me John chapter 12 and find verse 23. We'll be coming back here, um, especially to the final verse I'm about to read, verse 34. But I'd like us to begin by hearing from God's word this morning, John 12, verses 23 to 34. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there, my servant, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, and heard it, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This is the word of the Lord. 
Please be seated. Who is this son of man? This morning I want us to understand this title uh, really by fleshing out three truths. These are very simple truths for us to use to walk our way through this, the, the biblical account of this title. We're going to see three things this morning regarding the Son of Man. First, we're going to see the Old Testament established it. Second, Jesus loved it. And third, Jesus explained it. This is where we're going to go. Uh, and with this, what I hope will happen is that we'll be able to continue moving forward in John's gospel with a clearer sense of what Jesus is doing in his ministry of divine revelation. In other words, this is, I would suggest to you this morning, this study is not just going to help us in the places where the, the title Son of Man comes up. Now, our entire sense of Jesus' own plans, what he has in mind from the beginning of his ministry um, regarding his own messianic work, our whole sense of it is going to be sharpened by understanding this title better. We'll begin in the Old Testament. And what I want us to see is that the Old Testament established this category that we're hearing from the mouth of our Lord, Son of Man. So let's think about the Old Testament for a few minutes. And one of the first things we need to realize is that in the Old Testament, Son of Man is not a title at all. It's a description in the Old Testament. Son of man is a common synonym for human, for a, a person in a, in a human form, a human being. It's very easy to see from the ways that it's used. Several times, son of man comes up in a, in a parallel, Hebrew parallelism, where they're getting a single idea across using two lines. And so they'll use synonyms in order to get that singular idea across. A couple of examples of this. Numbers 23.19 says this, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. So you see the, 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 the word man and son of man set apart from each other. They're getting at the same idea. Uh, Job 25, 6 is another one of these, a little bit more salty language, because it's coming from one of Job's friends, Bildad the Shuhite. It's quite a name. Bildad the Shuhite says in verse 6 there, behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm. You see man and son of man being used to get the same idea across. That happens in a number of places. It's also very clear in the book of Ezekiel. That matters a lot in this case. Because Son of Man shows up 108 times in the Old Testament, 108 times total. Ezekiel has 93 of those 108 appearances. So how it's used in Ezekiel has a really big impact on how it's used in the Old Testament. Yeah? Uh, and each time that it shows up in the book of Ezekiel, the same thing is happening. God is using it to address Ezekiel in these kinds of ways. Just to give you one of these, because they're all... They all sound like this. Ezekiel 2.1, God says, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak with you. He's just using it to speak to Ezekiel. Man, stand up. It's a description of the fact that he's talking with a human being. 
and that's what it is. The reason that it comes to take on the status of a title, the reason that it develops beyond just being a human description and becomes something of a title, even, as we'll see, a title with messianic connotations to it, the reason for that is Daniel chapter 7. Let me ask you to turn there uh, to see a couple of verses. We're going to see this. We're going to move on this morning, but we'll come back, and we'll be ending in Daniel 7 as well. Find Daniel 7, 13. We'll begin just by reading verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes this. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven there came one, here it is, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now even without looking at the context yet, what do we see in these verses? We see son of man as the description that it is, not the title. Uh, the point here is, there, here comes a being now before the ancient of days. And Daniel says, this was a man. I saw in the vision, this is a human being coming for, before the ancient of days. And yet... <laughs> There are these things that happen, these descriptions given of this one like a son of man that throw the Jews into confusion and speculation. I mean, this is incredibly significant when this prophecy comes to the Jews. You can imagine why this immediately begins to be taken up by them as a phrase with messianic associations. Because there's this one like a son of man here who is Coming up before the Ancient of Days, it says, on the clouds of heaven. Only God rides the clouds in the Old Testament. That's a divine description. This one, like a son of man, is given dominion over all peoples and nations. God exercises dominion over all nations and all people. And it's a dominion that will be eternal. Well, look, God is the one whose dominion is eternal. It's part of what distinguishes him from all lesser rule. And thus, in this one sentence, the phrase, the description, son of man, suddenly begins to join for them really what is a litany of Old Testament themes that the Jews are wrestling with and debating concerning the coming Messiah. You can even see in Jewish literature that we still have that, uh, that shows up in between the times of the Old and New Testament in the intertestamental period. They're beginning to write before Christ shows up on the scene uh, speculating about this son of man. And even then, they're beginning to use that phrase now as a messianic title because of what we see here in Daniel 7. It's clear from the things that they write, they don't understand it. There's a lot of confusion about how they are to understand the significance of the Son of Man as this descriptive title, but it is a category in their mind. Son of Man as a messianic title. Then Jesus comes into the picture. <laughs> Jesus shows up, and now we're into the second part of this morning's message as to the fact that Jesus so loved to use this title. 
Because what we find is that Christ arrives on the scene, he begins his public ministry, and he immediately shows a great interest in using this title for himself. Across the four Gospels, he's recorded as using it 80, around 80 times. Now, some of those, of course, are repeats of the same situation from one Gospel to another. But between the four, 80 times he takes that title onto his own lips in reference to himself. It becomes pervasive, as we'll see. Um, and many times, it just in his usage of the term, it almost seems like uh, a replacement for the pronoun I. He uses it uh, in, in such uh, common uh, he uses it so frequently like that. Just to give you a couple of examples, now, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, he's going to ask them two questions. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You hear the interchange? There's no confusion on their part either as to what he means. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Yes, but who do you say that I am? It's very commonly recognized even among his hearers that when he says Son of Man, he's talking about himself. Another example we'll find later in the book of John, John 6, 53, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He's taking it on in reference to himself, and he does it over and over again. And yet, as we're going to see in the third point this morning, it's not at all the case that he simply throws the title around casually when he's talking about himself that he uses it just in general. What we're going to find is that Jesus uses that title for himself as he speaks in reference to particular activities. When he speaks in reference to what he's going to do as our Messiah, this is when we find these things appearing. We'll see that in a moment. Right now, we're simply asking a different question. Why does Jesus love this title so much? It, and you could, you could think of it this way. If he's going to use this title to describe his work as the Messiah, why doesn't he just say Messiah? Why this more ambiguous, less clear in their minds title of Son of Man? Uh, much has been written about just how hesitant he is to use the term Messiah. He is famously hesitant to speak of himself with the word Christ or Messiah, or even for others to do the same. You almost never find Jesus speaking of himself and his work using that particular title, Christ, or its translation, Messiah. He, he uses the term Christ, he uses the term Messiah, none, 
because that's the translation. He uses the term Christ 13 times in the New Testament. And remember, 80 times does he speak of the Son of Man. Most of those 13, he's doing one of two things. He's either warning his disciples toward the end of his ministry about false Christs, and so that's the context in which he's saying that title, or this is repeated in several places, that wonderful scene where he is stumping the scribes by asking them about the Christ and why is it that he is called David's Lord when he is David's son. Remember that? That's repeated across the Gospels. So those take up a lot of the uses of the term Christ. There are a couple of times where he is in a conversation where his identity as the Christ with, those, with that word comes up and he directly accepts it. One of those will be in our next chapter when he's talking with the Samaritan woman. And toward the end of that conversation, she says something to the effect of, we know that when the Christ comes, he will explain all things to us. And Jesus says, you're talking to him. That's where she gets up and runs into the town. And we'll see another profound example of him taking on this title, Christ, here in a few minutes. But outside of those very rare places, he does not speak of himself with the title Christ. And the question is, why? Why? And what is happening differently when the Son of Man has messianic connotations anyway? The answer seems to be pretty clear when we remember one thing. You're aware, perhaps, of just how confused the Jews had become by Jesus' day about what Messiah was going to do in his rescuing of God's people. What kind of rescue did they need? What kind of a rescuer was he going to send? The Jews were waiting for a political savior to come and rescue them from Rome. Their concept of Messiah is all mixed up by the time Jesus arrives. So that claiming that title is going to be incredibly counterproductive to his mission. He has come to prepare the people to know what he's going to do. He's come to lay down his life in a particular way for a particular need. And the title Messiah, because of all of the baggage that it now carries in the minds of the Jews, is a hindrance. You remember times when the people began to think of him in those terms? His feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6 is going to be one of those. And he has to get out of there because it says he perceived that they were about to take him and forcibly make him their king. You remember those situations? Jesus is not at all trying to hide the fact that he is the Messiah. What he's doing is he's choosing his words very carefully. So that he is the one who is setting the terms of the conversation. He is the one who is setting the terms of his own identity as he presents himself to the people. Gerhardus Voss put it this way. He said, Jesus probably preferred the name, Son of Man, because it stood farthest removed from every possible Jewish prostitution of the Messianic office. It's a good way to put it. Similarly, Tom Schreiner writes that by using this term, Jesus did not automatically arouse suspicion and antagonism, and he could slowly teach his followers the significance and meaning of Son of Man. Their understanding of it could be reoriented as Jesus' teaching and ministry progressed. Now, what I want us to see this morning is that that's exactly what happened. 
Jesus does not set about to do a thing and fail to do that thing. And in this case, we're just able to marvel at the, simply the master teacher that the Lord Jesus Christ was. The world has never seen a better teacher. Then it saw when Christ Jesus walked the earth and taught the multitudes. Turn with me again back to John 12 um, and find verse 34. This is where we began this morning. I want us to look at one verse in particular here. Remember, as you're finding verse 34, remember what we saw above this. Jesus has just said that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's spoken of being lifted up from the earth. He said those two things. You can tell that the crowd is very much locked in to what he's saying. Uh, There was just a voice who responded from heaven to something that he said. Was this lightning? Was this an angel? They're talking about this. One thing is sure, they are paying attention, aren't they? This is not a casual moment as he's making these declarations. But there's something he has said in there that's confused them. And so they ask him a question in verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Now I want to suggest to you that this verse is huge for us in understanding what level of comprehension is going on there between Jesus and those that are listening to him. What is the nature of the interaction between them here regarding this title, Son of Man? Notice there are several things here that they're clearly tracking with. First, they get it, don't they? That he is making something of a messianic claim. He didn't use the word Christ or Messiah. He's not said that here. He made a statement about the glorification of the Son of Man in verse 23. And a statement about being lifted up from the earth in verse 32 which they seem to understand as a statement of death, or at least a statement of leaving in some way, because their confusion is this, in, verse, in that verse, wait a minute, we thought that the law said that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to remain forever once he came. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Can you see in their own minds the connection between the Christ and the Son of Man? They get that there's a connection here. The other thing to notice, we we just mentioned, that they did get his statement about being lifted up. Whether they understand it as an actual death or not, they at least understand it as a statement of not remaining. Because that's their whole confusion, right? Wait, I thought he was going to remain forever when he came. So how can you say that he must be lifted up? There's a great deal of understanding here between them. Keep in mind as well that this is coming at the end of his ministry. He has been using uh, this statement, this title, Son of Man, for some time now. This helps us to understand the question they ask at the end. Who is this Son of Man? Their question there is not a question about the personal identity of the person, the man that Jesus is speaking about. They know that Christ is talking about himself. He's been doing it for years, and he even does it here. Uh, They're asking about the Son of Man being lifted up, but notice in verse 32 what he actually said. He said, when I am lifted up. 
They know he's talking about himself. So when they ask, who is this son of man? It's not a question about the exact personal identity of this figure. It's a question about the nature of the role itself. Their confusion is, who is son of man? What kind of a figure were we supposed to understand him to be? How is he going to play a messianic role if he's going to be lifted up? I don't understand. The fact that they're asking that question means that Jesus has accomplished his mission regarding his use of that title. Exactly what he wanted to do by referring to himself as the Son of Man, he has done. He has successfully worked an end around on their baggage regarding messianic expectations. What it's done is it's forced them into a place where they're now not taking their own preconceived notions of Messiah for granted. He has successfully gotten them to start wrestling with their conception of what kind of rescue God has always been promising to bring since the Old Testament prophets. What kind of savior God was going to be providing. This is why Jesus so loved the title Son of Man. He was able to use it in this masterful way to present the truth that God had always been presenting in the prophets of the need of fallen humanity and of the way that God was going to rescue his people. So we've seen the Old Testament significance of the phrase, Son of Man. I hope we've come to understand why Jesus chose to focus his identity, to focus the, what I mean is the, his use of particular titles as opposed to others in this way. He's doing an end around on people's wrong expectations concerning the Messiah. We even saw in John 12 that he succeeded in that. For the rest of our time this morning, I want us to see how Jesus interpreted, how he explained that title for the crowds by how he chose to use it. What Jesus is going to do throughout his ministry is he's going to fill this title with meaning using the context in which he's going to uh, refer to himself in this way. This is the place this morning where a particular handout in your bulletin might be helpful to you. We're going to read through a number of passages. We won't read through all of the ones that I have listed there. But as we jump through these, I thought it might be helpful for you to see the references in front of you. You don't at all need to turn to all of these. It might be hard to do that, but I will have us turn to, to uh, one or two of them. Uh, we can get very far in organizing Christ's descriptions of Son of Man into three categories. And that's the way that we'll see these. He uses that title in particular when he describes, number one, his authority to judge at the last day. The authority that God has given the Messiah that he has sent. He uses it in describing, secondly, the necessity of his suffering and death and even resurrection. And the third way he uses it, I'll put this kind of vaguely there on your handout, he uses it in describing his provision of heavenly necessities. Maybe we'll see why I've put it that way when we get there. First, uh, Jesus uses the title Son of Man when he is speaking about his divine authority, and in particular, authority to judge. Let me point out a few of these to you and read them. Uh, Matthew 16, 27. 
For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 25, 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. You're going to notice as we keep going through these just how profoundly direct and significant are the things Jesus is talking about when he speaks of himself as the Son of Man. Wish we could go through each of these uh, aloud. Uh, John 5, 27. Notice this one. Jesus says, and this is speaking of the Father to the Son. He says, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It doesn't get much more direct than that. Inherent in what God is doing with this Son of Man is the granting of authority to execute judgment. Now, just notice in these ones, in in this particular category, in a way, he's not conveying a messianic reality that would have necessarily surprised the Jews of his day. They would have expected Son of Man to come with, with great power and authority to judge. Daniel 7 makes that abundantly clear, all of this authority that is granted to the Son of Man. It is interesting that Jesus, in many of these contexts, is specifically warning Jews to beware the coming judgment. That would have been something different. It makes me think of what we saw early on in John's gospel with John the Baptist's ministry. You remember that one thing that set John the Baptist apart was that he was baptizing Jews in a baptism of repentance. That was new. Gentiles would be baptized in a baptism of repentance, but not Jews. So even from the beginning, as John is preparing the way for the Christ to come, He's doing the same thing that Jesus is going to do and leveling out that playing field, if you will. Now, you see on your handout one last one in that category with an asterisk. Uh, Jesus there does not speak directly about judgment, but he does speak about authority in a profound way. Verse 5 of that one, for which is easier? You remember this, uh, this account. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In a way, that is an authority for judgment, isn't it? He looks at that man and says, I forgive your sins. And when he speaks of the authority, he has to do that. He speaks of himself as the Son of Man. This happens over and over again. But it's not the only context. It's not the only uh, messianic details that Jesus conveys when he uses this title. Uh, There's a second context in which he does this, and that's in the many places where he is speaking about the, usually in terms of necessity, the necessity of his suffering and even his death. Jesus, as the Son of Man, is going to suffer and die and rise again. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 20, verse 25. This is a good reminder in its own right. All of these are, aren't they? 
But listen to this. Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. That's speaking not just of the exercising of authority, but of the oppressive exercise of authority. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be came not to be served, but to serve. That's important to get right in that order, isn't it? Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he speaks of the ransom that he is going to pay by the giving of his life, here comes again the title, Son of Man. The next one is Mark 8. Would you please turn with me to this one? Mark 8, 27. This is one that's definitely worth seeing with your own eyes. I'll read verses 27 to 32 in Mark 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Oh, now here's the use of that term. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. A couple things to, to notice there. You notice the, um, <laughs> the pretty immediate shift when Peter answers the way that he does. You are the Christ. And Jesus' response, you tell no one. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And yet Jesus has been telling people about himself in messianic terms for a while now. Right? Um, there's something about this term that is going to be counterproductive to his mission. I hope this is, this is one of the many places where it's very easy to see what we were talking about earlier. But the other thing to notice is in verse 31. It says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He began to teach them that these things must be true of the Son of Man. That's something about the Son of Man that they did not understand. They needed to be taught that this is what was going to be necessary of the Son of Man who would come. The Son of Man that was going to ascend in the clouds and receive all honor and authority. It's necessary that he first suffer and die. This is news to them. They must be taught it. And Peter does not like this lesson at all. And this is where he begins to rebuke his Lord. 
So you see then, I think that's the best of any of these in, in pointing out the direct way that Jesus uses this title to teach about a particular role he's going to have as the Messiah. A third category is uh, that of the Son of Man is the provider of heavenly necessities. I'm putting it that way because what the necessity is, is changes depending on the passage that we're going to read here. I'll read each of these. John 3, verses 12 and 13. We've seen this one before in months past. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Maybe you remember what, uh, what he was getting at there. Uh, there are things you need to know. There are heavenly realities that you must know about, and you've got no one to tell them to you except for the one that has descended from heaven to give you these heavenly realities, to share with you. And when he speaks like that about himself, he says, the Son of Man. These these get progressively specific, I think, as we go through these. The next one is John 6, 27. Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. There is food that you need. And I'm not talking about the food that perishes. There's food that endures to eternal life. How do you get that food? The Son of Man will give you that food. He is the one who must provide what you need from heaven. John 6.53, he doesn't just provide the food you need from heaven. In fact, he is the food that you need from heaven. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. What is it that he has descended from heaven to give? What is the food that must be consumed, that which we have to have to be sustained for eternal life? The answer is, it's Christ. Christ is what we have to have or we perish. And how does he describe that? He says, the Son of Man will give this to you. This is what the Son of Man has come to do. He is, in fact, the means of access to heaven itself. I mean, he is the very point of connection between us and the Father. John 1, 51, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And back when we were in chapter 1, we saw then that he is directly speaking back, looking back to the Old Testament story of Jacob and the ladder in the vision. Angels from heaven are ascending and descending to earth on this ladder this means of access to the heavenly realm and even to God himself. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is the very means of access. We could get creative and come up with some other ways to say that. We could say he is the way. We could say no one comes to the Father except by him. We could get real creative and come up with new ways to say that. And as this element of what the Messiah is going to be for his people is spoken of, Jesus uses the language of Son of Man. Now, I think this is where it's most helpful for us, or where we're maybe ready, uh, to return to Daniel 7 
and think more carefully about what's happening there. This is the last place I'll have you turn. You can get to Daniel 7, and you're finished turning. You can just sit back and relax. Look back again at verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. And I want us to see this, but to see it along with more of its context in the chapter. Remember what we're seeing happening here in Daniel 7, 13 and 14. There is a presentation going on in this passage of the Son of Man before the ancient of days. And in verse 14, there is a giving. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. What we need to recognize this morning is that this Son of Man here is being given something in the context of books being opened. That's verse 10. There's just been a vision of the four beasts, which verse 17 is going to interpret for us as four kings of the earth. Verse 9, the Ancient of Days has taken his seat. And then verse 10, the books have been opened. What's the result of these books being opened in the courtroom? Verse 12, the dominion of the beasts is taken away from them. And then here comes the Son of Man, and he is given all of this. My friends, the Son of Man is being given a reward for what he has done. He is being given what he has earned according to the books. Now look further down. Verse 16, this vision ends and Daniel says, Would someone please explain to me what in the world I've just seen? I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And the interpretation begins. At verse 26, look down at verse 26 and notice what is said. And let me maybe say ahead of time, you might be peeking over to verses 11 and 12. Verse 26 will correspond, in terms of its interpretation, with what happened in verses 11 and 12. Verse 26, we read this, But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. It's verses 11 and 12. You have the destruction of the fourth beast, and you have the dominion being taken away from the beasts. And then, there's verse 13, son of man. Here comes the interpretation in verse 27. Look at verse 27 in this interpretation. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom the kingdom of the Most High, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now that is very interesting. In verse 13, those things are given to the Son of Man. But in verse 27, they're given to the saints of the Most High. How is that? My friends, it's because Jesus as the Son of Man is accomplishing there. He is winning, he is earning and receiving on behalf of his people. He comes before the Ancient of Days as a representative of a people. 
regarding that interpretation in verse 27 that is given to Daniel. John Calvin comments this. He says, the point must be noticed. What belongs to the head is transferred to the body. In the end, what Daniel 7 is prophesying is that God would equip a new human representative. The eternal son taking on flesh as the human son of God, the last Adam. And that this one, representing his people, will be found worthy to receive all of this from God. A throne, all glory and honor and dominion. John Frame says on this point, Son of man, therefore, refers in the first instance to Jesus' humanity as the representative of God's elect who saves them from sin. John MacArthur speaks similarly. The Son of Man fulfills mankind's role as the human race's only perfect representative. And in those two words, perfect representative, I mean, think about what that means for you. Think about what that means about your hope. Think about what that means about your failures. Think about what that means about your future. Do you see how in God's sending in the Son of Man a new representative to represent people. Do you see how all of our greatest fears are quieted in this news about this fulfillment that comes when the Son of Man comes? Do you see how all of the worst accusations of Satan are dismissed as the Son of Man becomes our perfect representative? We sang about it this morning in one of our songs, In You, we face our judge and maker unafraid. Because he did all of this <coughs> he did all of these things that he did representing me. He did it in my place. He lived perfectly in my place. He suffered the wages of sin even my sin in my place. My sins have not been overlooked. They have been, they've had wrath poured out on them. They've already had wrath poured out on them. Because when Jesus suffered and died, he was doing it as my representative. He did it in my place. My friends, if this is... <coughs> Excuse me, if this is what God has chosen to do, if like with Adam, God has chosen again to interact with a plurality of humans on the basis of his interaction with a single human, representing them all, and if that's the judgment we're reading about in Daniel chapter 7, then it really is the case that it can be said of the worst sinner among us, 
He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's Romans chapter 8. He sits enthroned on high as our representative. That's why the book of Ephesians can say accurately that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. What sense does that make? It's because the Son of Man received all dominion and honor and glory. He paid all of what was needed for sin to be atoned, and he did it on behalf of a people. My friends, if you come to grips with the representative nature of your relationship to your Heavenly Father, and with the implications of that kind of a relationship, There are some things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean, and interestingly, Paul seems to anticipate that too. It doesn't mean that we can sin so that grace may abound. It doesn't mean that our own actions in this life are irrelevant because there's a representative relationship here. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean there's no sense in which our sanctified lives as Christians become some sort of vindication of God's verdict on the last day. Our recent ARF conference would have been much better if it had ended with that point, I think. All of those things are true. And we have to know those things. We have to love what God loves. But what we see this morning is that when Jesus stands before us as the Son of Man, the truth that we're presented with is that because he has succeeded, we are forever safe in him. I'll give one Final possible application. Maybe this all means that we should spend a lot less time looking at ourselves than we do. And a lot more time looking at, marveling at, our representative who stood in our place. I wonder, what would that one change do to your inner life? Is there something you need setting free from that that one change of focus might just bring about? Would you pray with me? Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? That you would do these things. You would send your son to do this for us to be this for us. There's nothing to do but to thank you. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you are still doing, that you're so committed to your people in your love that you are changing us, ourselves. You're conforming us into his image. Father, help us to pursue that image to pursue it passionately and fervently. And help us, Father, to pursue that image with the understanding that our everything, our everything, 
is wrapped up not in our performance, but in the Son of Man's performance, which has been finished and has been evaluated, and we have gotten to read the evaluation in Daniel 7, that he has been found pleasing in your sight. And he was found pleasing in your sight on behalf of his people. It's in his name, the name of our great God and King. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.